happen. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 133 and Titus 3. Those are probably the best places to uh, turn to if you use a physical copy. If you use your device uh, and go to the Version app, there's a button on there that says sermon notes. And all the passages that we use, all the little spots that we park in uh, today will be there for reference for a whole week. And also, I would even challenge you to grab that Version app now if you have it. And uh, so there's a, a spot there for registrations. Uh, we've got some fun things coming up. Um, in a couple weeks, we've got our 10-year uh, anniversary service. And along with that is a cookout. Uh, at the Ransom's farm. And so we're cooking a pig and a bunch of uh, incredible food. And so we need you to RSVP to that. That just tells us uh, how much food to prepare for. And so you can just write down there on the Uversion app, you can go to registrations and let us know who's coming, how many are coming, and that will serve us well. Also, uh, before we start our service today, we've got uh, a group of women out on a women's uh, retreat. Uh, today, there's a couple of more of those happening this fall, and I believe there's one spot available left. Is that right? There's one spot available. So uh, you can beat everyone else to the punch. If you're still here, you can register on the Uversion app as well. So how about this? Let's pray for our time together and pray for those uh, ladies that are off uh, just seeking a time of refreshment with the Lord, and, um, and we will get into it. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us this time this morning. We're grateful that you've preserved your word for us so that um, centuries pass and yet we see very clear pictures of who you are and what you want for us. And so Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for that this morning. Lord, I pray with that you would be with the ladies of our family, of our community that are uh, away uh, this weekend, wrapping up a time together uh, with you. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them. Lord, I pray even now that you would help them hear from you very clearly. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we've been in this series called Welcome to Church. And in it, we've been looking at the commitments uh, of what it means to be a part of the church. But we started with uh, what are the commitments that God uh, has has placed on his church? What is God committed to uh, for the church? And, and what, is it, uh, what is so special about the church? In fact, uh, that he promises to do things only and in his church. And so we began there and we said, these are the things that God's committed to. And if the church is the way that he has said he's going to accomplish his mission, then what should we be committed to? How should we uh, view and operate within the church? So what should the commitments of the leaders be in the church? And also what should the church be? be committed to. And then we turn this corner and we're looking at five commitments uh, of what it means to be a member here, but also we believe what it means to be a member at any biblical church. Uh, we would hold these things in high value. So we started with uh, a commitment to pursue community. Uh, arrows out means that we're looking for other people. We're looking to love other people. We're, we're not just coming to church. We're going to church in a way that says, I, I want to see someone that, I, that needs my presence today. Uh, then second, uh, I commit to submitting to the care, protection, and correction of leadership. And third, today we start a new uh, um, commitment, is this, that I commit to protecting the unity and health of exchange. 
It's the third commitment, but it's really important. It's, it's a thread that we see all throughout the New Testament and even present in the Old Testament. Uh, before the church was born, before Acts chapter two ever happens, we see this principle in the Old Testament where it pleases God when his children are in community with one another and view each other and treat each other in a way that honors him. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, famously said these words. He said, when, when we look at modern man, we have uh, to face the fact that modern man suffers from a kind of poverty of spirit, which stands in glaring contrast to his scientific and technological abundance. We've learned to fly in the air like birds. We've learned to swim in the seas like fish. And yet we haven't learned to walk the earth as brothers and sisters. It's no secret that this is a major theme for life within the church all throughout scriptures. And the passages are frequent in the New Testament, abundant. It's, it's almost as if every letter to the church in the New Testament has something about unity, something about striving uh, to become in one mind. And notice how Paul says that we should pursue and protect unity in just two of his letters. In Romans chapter 14, he says this, and when we pursue the things which make for peace, and building up of one another. We pursue those things. In Ephesians chapter four, verse one through three, he says it this way. Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So he's gonna tie this incredibly into walking in a way that's worthy of Christ has direct connotations to unity. Watch this, with all humility, gentleness, patience, and showing tolerance for one another in love, be, being diligent to preserve the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, to preserve these things. So this, there's these forward motion in these passages. It's not just that, that Paul is encouraging us to be neutral. In fact, I don't even know if that's possible but he's encouraging them to be pursuing peace, preserving peace, protecting unity. It's just like we talked about in pursuing community with arrows out. Paul is asking us or commanding us really to do the same in the church. With, with many of the warnings that we see in scripture and the prompts to go after unity, it should be clear to us that this is really, really important. It's something that the enemy is going to attempt to, to destroy the church with. And in fact, right after Acts chapter 2, the church is born. Immediately, the attacks on unity begin. And the reason, among many others, is why this is so important is because Jesus said it was. Jesus said that this was important. John chapter 13, verse 35, he says this, And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. He gives the world a license to judge us if we are actually believers and actually following him by the way that we treat one another. Just a few chapters later in John chapter 17, Jesus still speaking. He says this in a prayer to the father. He says, I and them and you and me, and they may be, be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus has this prayer and he's praying to the father and he's saying, Lord, would you allow the church, the, my children to be so unified that the world looks on them and knows that you love them because of the unity that exists. Now, again, we talked about this last week. The idea of submission requires 
disagreement. It's not submission when we just, uh, when everything is uh, fine and we agree. That's just compliance. That's just the, 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 a posture of submission. But with unity also, unity exists in a posture and an act. Unity exists in a posture and an act. A posture of unity saying that I want to pursue these things. I want to protect these things. But also you know, unity exists when we choose to live in a way that honors God and that shows the world who we are. I would push this to this point because of Jesus' words, that unity among believers proves to the world that we are followers of Christ. Unity among believers proves to the world that we're followers of Christ. I think that this point, if any point, should compel us to pursue and protect it because the world is watching. The world's watching. The world's watching how we disagree. The world's watching, I think, when we disagree. And unity is not the absence of disagreement. Unity comes in the midst of disagreement. Jesus invites the world to judge us based on this. And notice just this other passage in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. And he says this, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, and I love this, Paul employs the name of Christ. He says, By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. Paul invokes the name of Jesus. He says, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, would we all just be committed to unity? I think scripture is clear that the stakes are high and the war that we're fighting against in division and unity with the church, we have to protect the church. We have to protect the church from division and disunity that plagues our world and our culture. Our elders have to protect the church, uh, but we have to protect the church. You have to protect the church. If we can do that, then this is our church. It's not just someone else's church. It's not just their church. It's our church. It's not just something that we go to and do. A few years back, we did a series called DNA, And we looked at a psalm, Psalm 133. It's an entire chapter in the Psalms that's dedicated to uh, the unity of believers. And since it's been a few years, and it'll be probably five or six more years until we get there in our summer of Psalms, I felt like it would be a good place for us to review, camp out on today. I'm gonna read the entire chapter. It's not long, just three verses. Uh, And David says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. And it's like precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. So I honestly, at first pass, I get the first statement. It's really, really good when brothers dwell in unity. And then he talks about some strange things about oil flowing down and dew, and he's lost me there, right? But it's just as important. I think now scripture's clear that the stakes are high, so we should push in, unfold this, and see what he has to say. The psalm is attributed to David. It's a song of ascents, and it was most likely sung by pilgrims going up to Jerusalem uh, as they went during uh, the worship, during the feast. And so like uh, the the believers in Acts chapter two, they would have journeyed all over the world, near and far. And this was a theme song that they would sing as they were approaching Jerusalem. 
Uh, much like Eye of the Tiger is for Rocky before he has his fight, right? This was the theme song of believers coming to Jerusalem uh, to worship and to gather together. Can you imagine what that might have been like to meet up with believers from all over the world, all over the region, and all singing this encouraging song? But what if you met up with believers from nations and lands who attacked your nations and your lands? What if at this moment coming to Jerusalem, these two crossroads merge into one and you see someone from the region and from the land who attacked your land and now your brother is no more because their brother took your brother? What do you say then? What do you do then? And this song becomes even more beautiful at the very opening line. How pleasant is it when we dwell in unity? The unity that's being described here is this spiritual unity. It's a oneness and faith and hope as they go to worship the one true God, blessed in that unity. And for some of us, it's our common faith and our hope and our love in Jesus that overcomes all of our other differences, or should. So David gives two illustrations, the two that I didn't really understand at first glance, uh, oil and dew. He says this, that unity is like precious oil on the head running down on the beard of Aaron, on Aaron's beard specifically, the oil which ran down upon the edge of his robes. So I'll be honest, uh, first glance thinks like oil running down your beard and onto your shirt, onto your robe means you make a call and be like, hey, can you bring me another change of clothes because I ruined this. This is not a good thing. But there's a context here that I think is really important to understand. It comes from us uh, to Exodus chapter 30, which we read in our series through Exodus. He says this, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses and saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250 of the fragrant cane, 250 of the cassia, 500 according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and an olive oil of a hen. I don't, I don't really know what a hen is. You shall make uh, from these a holy anointing oil, a fragrant mixture of ointments, the work of a perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. It seems like this oil was more of a perfume or fragrance rather than a 10W30 motor oil blend. But not only was the recipe very precise, it was reserved for special times and special people. I, I want you to catch this. This recipe for oil was reserved for special times and for special people. It talks about this a little bit later, a few verses later. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve as priests to me. And further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations that shall not be poured on anyone else's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It's holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever mixes anything like it, whoever puts any of it on layman shall be cut off from his people. So they would lavish their priests with this oil and it would run down their hair and down their beard and down their clothes. And in the context of Psalm 133, David has this very specific recipient in mind, Aaron. 
And Aaron was Moses' older brother, the high priest of Israel. The anointing of Aaron consecrated Aaron. It set him apart, allowing him to minister and worship the Lord in a way that no one else could. And in the same way, unity among God's peoples enables us to worship God in a way that's not just pleasing and good, but it honors him. He says that that the unity among brothers enables us. It looks like the high priest coming in to worship. And I believe this is true, that unity in the church enables believers to worship God in a way that's pleasing to him. Unity in the church allows us to enter worship in a way that's pleasing to him. In fact, Jesus speaks these words in Matthew chapter five, and he, he draws a distinction between unity and just, uh, I would say, um, meaningless worship. Notice what Jesus says. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So Jesus, I think unity to Jesus with your brother and your sister is that important where Jesus would say that unity among our brothers and sisters in the church is a prerequisite to worship. Maybe to say it really plainly, what that means is maybe harshly, but maybe needed. What that means is some of us may be wasting our time today. If we're harboring and holding in bitterness and disunity and strife, and then we try to come to Christ, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. John would even say, he said, you can't say that you love the father and hate your brother. You can't do it. You can't hold those two things at the same time. David employs another illustration. It's far from our understanding, far from mine initially, but many of us probably uh, don't necessarily appreciate the dew. We walk outside and get our shoes wet. Maybe it keeps us from cutting the grass early in the morning before it gets too hot. But dew, especially in the Old Testament, was a sign of God's blessing and provision. There's a passage in Hosea where God himself says that the presence, his presence will be like the dew to Israel. Notice in Hosea 14, verse four, he says, I'll heal their apostasy. I will love them freely because my anger has turned from them and I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and he will take root in the cedars of Lebanon. So the dew, God likens his presence like the dew and it's a blessing. Not only is there dew, but there, it comes from Mount Hermon, which is a place, not a person. Uh, Meemaw, Jana's grandmother, uh, used to keep her sourdough starter in a jar on the counter, and she would call it Hermon. That's, that was her pet. So every time I think of Mount Hermon, I think of Hermon. Mount Hermon is located about 9,000 north and it's 9,000 feet tall. It's covered in snow about nine months of the year. So the association here is that the dew coming from Mount Hermon would be heavy. It would lavish the land like oil running down, like Aaron's beard. 
Mount Zion is to the south where Jerusalem would end up being. And of course, there are books written on why David would specifically choose two mountains, one to the north and one to the south. They're well over 100 miles apart. Maybe it symbolizes unity. But he says the dew from Mount Ernan falls on Zion. Where the worshipers are going, they're going to receive a blessing that's not normally there. That's supernatural. So maybe David is saying it's like something supernatural, which exactly is what the church needs. This oil flowing down, the dew flows down. This gives us a picture of unity coming down from God as a gift to his people. So if it's this important, if unity is this important, where it says that, that it's a prerequisite even to worship, if, it's, if it pleases God, it honors God, we have to figure out how then do we protect it? How then do we pursue it? Do we all just promise to listen to the same news stations and podcasts? Would that do it? If, if we just picked one and we said, you know what, at Exchange Church, this is the only one, would that preserve and protect unity? I don't think it would. What if we all promised to read only the same blogs? I don't think that would do it either. I think this is really important. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not the absence of disagreement. Supernatural unity, spiritual unity, unity in the church happens when we are different. This kind of unity actually requires differences to, to look like Christ. So Jesus said uh, this to his disciples at one point. He says, you know, it's easy to love those who are lovable. But when I tell you to love your enemies, that is what the world looks on and says, whoa, how do they do that? In a similar way, I think this is the case where unity, when we all are in agreement, it's easy. Nobody looks at that in the church and says, whoa, man, they must be dedicated to something greater, something higher, something that, that matters more. No, it's actually in the midst of disagreement. It's actually in the midst of disagreement. When we disagree in a way that honors Christ, that then the world looks on us and says, whoa, how is it? How is it that two people, many people can disagree so starkly and still love each other? That's the kind of look that the world looks on and says, man, I want some of that. That's why Jesus says, you know, the, the, the world looks on us in that way and says, they must come from Christ. That's what we have to pursue. Like submission requires disagreement, unity requires disagreement. It's not something that just happens on its own. It's something that happens only through Christ empowered by the spirit when we do what he said and pursue and protect it. So how do we pursue and how do we protect it? I think Titus three in just like a few short verses gives us a recipe for how we protect and pursue unity. Titus three, verse nine, 10 and 11. Notice this passage. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All right, first, we protect unity by refusing to engage in worthless controversies. We protect unity by refusing to engage in worthless controversies. So foolish controversies can't possibly be taken as a prohibition against all theological controversy. John Stott speaks to this. He says, for Jesus himself was a controversialist. In some ways, he was in constant debate with the religious leaders of his day. Paul himself was also drawn into controversy over the gospel and he couldn't avoid it. In addition, he also um, argued and urged Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and told Titus that false teachers must be silenced and rebuked. But I would add to this that all of those conversations and controversies had the gospel at stake. So automatically and immediately, it's, it's a different category. It's not then at any point foolish controversies. This is eternity in mind. But, but Paul here urges us to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law. The gospel was at stake, and many times, especially in the context of the church, I would argue, though, especially in the context of the church, the controversies that divide us are not gospel-centric. Most often, most often, the controversies that divide us, are the gospel's not at stake. I would say our preferences are at stake. Our opinions are at stake. Our need to be right is at stake. What would it take for you to lay your opinion down? For the sake of unity, what would it take? read an interesting story this week. A Florida man was jailed for assaulting another man. But unlike most scenarios, the conflict was not over a woman, debt owed, or either uh, even sports fandom. According to the Lee County Sheriff's Office, Justin Anthony Garcia was charged with aggravated battery in connection with an altercation with his cousin. His cousin, right? who sustained injuries from a pocket knife. Authorities and witnesses confirmed that the argument was over whether almond milk was superior to whole milk. And a man was stabbed. A witness says the verbal argument became physical when Garcia became enraged at the victim for disagreeing with him. He proceeded to punch the victim with a closed fist to the victim's left side and forehead. And when the cousin tried to fight back, Garcia produced a knife. The victim became scared of what Garcia might do with the knife and proceeded to run away from Garcia. And he chased him. The victim uh, chased the victim through the front yard, according to court documents. 
confidential source at the scene was unable to confirm which variety of milk Garcia preferred. <laughs> Not whether it actually milk was spilled in the disagreement. Some injuries resulted, however, they were confident uh, in, um, in that both men will be okay. I mean, we read a story like that and think, what absurdity. What absurdity that two people would fight over milk. I just can't help but think that sometimes our father looks down from heaven and says, what absurdity. What absurdity. You're willing to fight over that. You're willing to argue over that. What if we, we had this dedication? What if we had this dedication to avoiding foolish controversies? Like when someone tries to, to pick a fight with us, when someone tries to argue, we just look at them and say, okay. Okay. Well, don't you want to argue? No. What if we just, what if we just, decided that we weren't going to contribute. We weren't going to be a part of it. What if we avoided those things? We avoided those subjects. We avoided those conversations. We avoided those divisive topics. What if we just said, okay, hey, let's talk about all the things that we disagree on. I'm going to pass. It's just been pass. You can talk at me if you want to. You can tell me all the ways that you think that I should have voted. You can tell me all the ways that you think that I should raise my kids. You can tell me all the ways that I'm, that I'm clearly wrong in all of the things. And I'll just look at you and say, okay, okay. But there's something inside of us, isn't there, that desperately desires to be right. And I think for the most insecure of us, we have to, we have to engage because we have to convince someone else why they are wrong and why we are right. What if we were so secure in Christ? What if we were so secure in who he says we are that we're able to look at someone and say, okay, I don't have to win. I don't have anything at stake here. I don't have to win. What's winning for me is refusing to let this idiotic disagreement separate us. That's a win for me. It's a win for me when I refuse those things. Now, I'll say this. Most mornings at exchange, uh, you know, the, the team gets here, starts setting up all this stuff at eight o'clock. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, having fun while we do it. Uh, we banter back and forth about all kinds of things. We argue most Sunday mornings before church starts. We argue about things like who the best uh, quarterback is at the moment. We argue about things like what is the best drum fill ever recorded and who was the best drummer. We argue about things like how to roast the perfect marshmallow, right? We argue about all kinds of stuff and never have we ever walked out of here and thought, Man, Jesse's a fool. He likes his burnt. I mean, I don't even know if I can have dinner with him again. Right? Like we argue, we banter about fun things. I, I, would, I would call those 
semi-meaningless, but they don't cause division. They don't, they don't cause us to look at someone and say, man, how dare you? They're fun, they're, they're easy, they're, they're lighthearted, but the enemy wants desperately to take arguments and dissensions and disagreements and differences of opinion. And he wants desperately to cause those conversations to divide us. So that's where we say, no. That's where a person comes in and desperately, you know, they're, they're trying to pick that fight. We just say, no. Smile and say, okay. First, we protect unity by refusing to be, a, be um, to engage in worthless controversies. Second, we to protect unity by refusing to be a safe place for divisive conversations and divisive people. We refuse to be a safe place for divisive conversations and divisive people. I want you to look again at the passage. He says this, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law for they're unprofitable and worthless. So we've already covered that. I refuse to be a part of, of conversations and disagreements that are just unprofitable. I'm, I'm just, I'm gonna refuse to do it. Second, look what Paul says. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them, he says. I mean, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? I mean, that almost sounds unloving. But you know what Paul is after here? Protecting the church. Protecting the church. So he says, that if there's someone who's dedicated to fighting, to quarrels, to divisiveness, that they come at us once and we say, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, I need you to know that I'm not gonna take part in this. They come at you twice. They say, whoa, hey, listen, I need you to know that this is making me uncomfortable. I'm not gonna engage in this way. Uh, if, if this is the, what you want to do and this is what you want our relationship to be like, I need you to know that I'm gonna have to step aside. And then Paul says, he actually, this is not a suggestion. This is not a suggestion. This is a command to protect the unity of the church. He says this, if there's a divisive person who loves controversy, warn them once and after twice, avoid them. Because unity is that important. We have to refuse to be a safe place for divisive conversations. We have to. I would say this, <clears throat> divisive words, divisive words only have power when they're given ears. Divisive words only have power when someone is willing to listen, right? Can you imagine the frustration of someone who has this division in them, this controversy in them, this strife in them, and they go from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, and find no safe harbor for their words? 
I mean, the Lord would use the church who refuses to engage in that to just squelch it. But I think what happens is we attempt to just be kind and we listen. I love what he says, a person who stirs up strife. I looked for one, I couldn't find it uh, because we don't have it. Have you ever seen like, uh, when I grew up, a lot of people that we were around uh, would around this time of year in the fall uh, would do these big, massive Brunswick stew um, like cooks or something like that. And it was like a, a witch's cauldron. Have you seen these like this massive black iron, like just iron pot? And do you know what they used to stir it up in? A boat oar. Have you seen this? I mean, it was like a wooden oar and somebody would just sit there and stir it. I want you to get that picture. Someone who stirs up strife and controversy. There's things that they are stirring. There's, I mean, in the, in the Brunswick stew, there's, there's meat and vegetables and broth and all kinds of stuff and you just stir it. But do you know what is required to be able to stir it? A pot. To be able to stir up controversy, it, it requires a pot. It requires a place to put those ingredients. It cannot be stirred without a pot. It cannot happen. And so the church, by refusing to engage in worthless controversies, by refusing to be a safe place for, for divisive people, we say, you know what? You're not gonna do in my presence. You're not gonna stir strife. I will give you no pot to stir your strife. I will give you no ears to listen. I will give you no satisfaction for your divisiveness. You have none here. I bet if we committed to this, I mean, strife would just die. It would just die. It has nowhere to go. We have to be committed to avoiding these things. In the Sam Mendes film, 1917, Lance Corporal Schofield has been tasked with crossing through enemy infested territory to deliver this crucial news of a secret ambush uh, to the British front lines. And Schofield has given this warning uh, for, about the, the commanding officer uh, to whom he's delivering the letter. And he's told this, he said, make sure there are witnesses. Some men just like to fight. He said, now, I'm gonna send you here to bring peace, but make sure when you tell that commanding officer that he does not need to engage in this, make sure there's witnesses because some men just like to fight. Instruction is sobering, even though Schofield is bringing these direct orders to stand down, which will save thousands of life. He's cautioned that the orders might be ignored. Why? Because regardless of the superior command to stand down, regardless of the cost, regardless of the impossible odds, and the foolhardy death would ensue, there's this zeal for battle. When you feel built for war, when you feel long for the rush of conflict, not warring, feels like cowardice, uselessness, and pointlessness. Some men just like to fight.
And I think it's those that Paul is urging us to say, not here, not here. You know, it's, it's incredible. Uh, so some versions would actually say to remove this man from your midst. After once, after twice, you remove them. I mean, think about that. That's a, that's a stark, that's, that's a, hey, listen, you're no longer welcome here because you are destroying our family. And we're not gonna allow that. If you're set on these divisive words, we're gonna have to remove you from our community. We say here a lot of times, uh, it's, a, it's a catchphrase that came from a book. Um, and we, we say a lot of times, needy and needed. Needy and needed. And I think sometimes, you know, that's been taken without nuance. But what Paul says is, someone who stirs up strife and who's dedicated to strife, who's dedicated to divisiveness, what Paul says is, they're not needed in your community. Man, that's, that's, a, that's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? It's, it's not that they're not important. It's that Paul says unity in the church is so sacred. It's so important that we would protect it at that cost. We would protect it at that cost. Proverbs talks about this. He says, there are six things what the Lord hates. Yes, even seven, which are an abomination. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies. And listen, and one who spreads or stirs strife. This is not what he intends. Lee Enclave says it this way. He says, Christians are bound to one another in unity by the power of Christ's redemptive work. He gets that from Ephesians chapter two, verse 14. I love the way the New Living Translation says it. He says this, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He's united the Jews and the Gentiles, two groups that have nothing in common. He says this, he's united them into one people when on his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. The reason why this is so important is because unity declares to the world that Christ can make all things new. And when the church does not engage in this unity together, what we declare to the world is Christ has no jurisdiction with my argument here. See, when Jesus died on the cross, through his blood, we're brought together in one. Remember how we started this whole series? He made us a people all desperately needy of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he brought us into this one group of people and said, here you go. This is for you. This is for you. So often I think we take that, we shove it in our pocket somewhere and it says, okay, but now thanks for that. Now can we get to the politics? 
And I think Christ would say, how about you push the politics aside for a second, just focus on the fact that all of us in this room are desperately needy of grace and mercy and you all have found it. What if you find unity there? What if that's the glue that holds you together? What if that is the thing that despite all other disagreements causes you to look at someone who desperately and, and, and adamantly disagrees with you and you can say, you know what? I can disagree. We can have a fun conversation about that. Maybe as long as it doesn't stir up any kind of division among us. Maybe I'll listen, I'll, I'll listen to, to your difference opinion because that's actually good for me to hear those things, but I'm not gonna argue. I'm not gonna have a foolish controversy about this. I'm not gonna waste my time. How about this? How about we start our time with thanking Christ for dying on the cross for our sins? How about we end our time for thanking Christ for dying on the cross for our sins? I bet that would look very different. Church, we have to be committed. We have to be committed to unity. It's what Christ says shows the world we're different. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for giving us this instruction. Otherwise, we would gather around everything but you. Without these words, Jesus, we would have churches that gather around ideas and political affiliations and parenting strategies, education styles and calendar choices and work obligations, all of the things that we could find to, to unite ourselves around, Lord. We would do that without your words and without um, you pushing us to be unified, God, even without uniformity. So Lord, I, I pray that you would allow us to do that. Lord, would you give us the courage to avoid foolish controversies? Lord, even would you give us the courage to, to confront a divisive person? And Lord, would you give us grace when we repent from being that divisive person? Lord, we know your church is too important. Too important for our foolish controversies. And so Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would seek you search our own hearts and find the wedge that the enemy is trying to place in the church through us with divisiveness.